flow indeed. Thank you, Carol. Turn with me, if you would, in your copy of God's Word to Exodus chapter 20, or you can see it in your bulletin printed. Today we're looking at the last of the Ten Commandments. If you're visiting with us, we are going through Exodus. We've slowed down in the midst of the Ten Commandments and taken each one week by week. Today we conclude with the Decalogue with the Tenth Commandment. We're going to read uh, the commandments in whole. So here as I read from Exodus 20, 1 through 17. Hear God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. God, we thank you for this word. And as we come to the conclusion of these ten words, we ask that you would write them upon our hearts and that you would cause us to see Christ as we look at them today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as I was browsing the internet this week, I saw a two-panel comic strip, and the first panel had a disheveled man stranded on an island, and he's looking out, and he sees a small vessel in the distance, and his one word that he's crying out says, boat! He's so excited. And then the second panel shows the disheveled, starving man on the boat looking in the distance as he sees a tiny little island screaming out, land! And the, the comic strip is illustrating with humor a common phrase that we know all too well. The grass is always greener on the other side. And whenever you get to the other side, you, you find that it really wasn't greener at all than where you were, or whenever you get there, even if it is better in some way, you're still not satisfied. In the 1500s, Erasmus of Rotterdam actually quoted a Latin proverb that said, the corn in another man's ground 
seems ever more fertile and plentiful than our own. But I thought the 1500s, that seems kind of recent for the grass is greener concept. Actually, in 1 BC, the Roman poet Ovid said the harvest is always richer in another man's field. But I want to propose to you this, that the first time that we hear or see the concept of the grass is greener on the other side is in Genesis 3, whenever Satan says this, God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desired to make one wise. Here, right there. The tree was good for food, delight to the eyes, desired to make one wise. She covets. Then she took of its fruit and ate and gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Covetousness is as old as the garden itself, and it is in that very first sin in the garden. As we look at the 10th commandment today that says you shall not covet all these things, I want to take a second and define what covetousness is. And I want to propose to you this definition. Covetousness is sinful discontent coupled with the idolatrous desire for something or someone else. So sinful discontent with one's own possessions, estate, we, we read it in the Shorter Catechism Q&A, sinful discontent coupled with the idolatrous desire for something or someone else. And so in the garden, there is an element you can see of discontent with what God has given Adam and Eve and the idolatrous desire to be like God. And then it results in the acting out of that first sin of the taking of the fruit. And so we see that in the garden, covetousness grows out into other sins. And so in our own lives, you know, when we have discontentment with our own possessions, with what we have materially, we can look out across the street and see what our neighbor has and we can have an idolatrous desire for it. And then that can grow out into resentment for them. Or maybe we don't resent them. Maybe we just desire the things like they have and so it results in the pursuit of unjust gain, and you can see how discontentment and covetousness can begin to grow out into all of these other sins. Discontentment with one's own family or spouse for whatever reason, and then that desire for a situation or a person that is not your own spouse. And what I want to propose to you is that discontentment is like the breeding ground for covetousness. If you think about what it takes for mold to grow, what kind of environment does mold need? Mold likes an environment that is dark and dank and moist. That word moist is probably the most cringy word in the English language right now, isn't it? But that is where mold thrives. And so if you have an environment of discontent, where you're not satisfied with the things or individuals, whatever it is, that are in your world, it creates that environment that is ripe and ready for those little mold spores of covetousness to come along, latch into the environment, and begin to grow 
And it starts inside here and inside here, and then it begins to grow into words and actions. And if that illustration made you, uh, you know, a little disgusted, that's a good thing. That's more, uh, that's more like what we should, uh, how we should think about our sin. It's not simply something that is bad, like our sin should make us cringe. We should hate it like we hate mold. <laughs> we should hate it worse than we hate mold. But the 10th commandment, as I said, shows us that this is a matter not just of things that we do in the exterior, but it's a matter of heart and mind. This commandment explicitly goes after the heart and the mind. What is going on in here and in here? And so it's critical for us in killing our sin, not only to root out seeds of covetousness, but also to seek to create an environment that it won't grow in. And so that's why I've decided to sort of break out the outline for today's sermon in the way I have in talking about the contentment that we have in Christ alone and seeking his kingdom. So what is the environment that we have in our lives, this environment of contentment that we want that does not permit the sinful mold of covetousness to grow? What's the environment we're creating and what is it that we are seeking after? His kingdom uh, versus something or someone else. And so that's what I want you to see today as we move through the 10th commandment is that true contentment is found in Christ alone and seeking his kingdom. Now, we'll be spending some more time up front because I wanted to take a little bit more time to talk about the environment of contentment that we create. So if we get 25 minutes through the sermon and I'm only, you know, not even through the first point, you don't have to be scared. Uh, I intended it that way. Contentment in Christ alone. And what I wanted to do is talk about how we have enemies that attack our environment from the outside. So what are the enemies of our Christian contentment that come from the outside world that tempt us to create that environment of discontent? Well, the first is that we deal with circumstances that are the result of living in a sin-cursed world. And so we are tempted to create an environment of discontent whenever these circumstances come upon us. So we have our toil in labor, in, in work, and in school. Things don't work the way that they're supposed to. People don't do the things that they're supposed to do. And it results in disappointment. And this can be a temptation to create discontentment in our hearts. We have our own issues of physical health. You know, we deal with, and several of you in here, whether it's in you or in your family, deal with cancer, diabetes, all manner of physical and mental health struggles that aren't the result of your own personal sin. It's the result of a living in a sin-cursed world that creates a temptation to be discontent. In my own life, right now, um, several of you know this, most of you probably don't know that Precious is pregnant right now. And so I figured there'd be no better way to announce that than in the middle of a sermon. But now you all know. But Precious has, her first pregnancy was extremely difficult. And this one doesn't look like it's going to be any different. And so she's at home right now, laid up, 
with a Zofran pump, and we got an IV on Friday. That is the result. That is the, uh, that is the pregnancy, the, you know, the, the sin-cursed world uh, reality of pregnancy right now. And I'm living in that, Precious is living in that at this moment. And how easy it is, it's not even the result of our own sin, it's just the result of a sinful world. Why don't other people have to deal with this? How come this is, you know, why am I living with this? Why is she living with this? That's where the enemy of content can come from the outside. We can be frustrated and discontent. And by the way, I'm sorry in advance, I'm probably going to say the word content and discontent a thousand times, but it's what it is. The other enemy of our contentment that can come from the outside is not just living in a sin-cursed world, but the effects of other people's sin upon us. When other people sin against us. So, spouses, when we sin against one another. Children, when you sin against your parents. And parents, when you sin against your children. Whoever is on the receiving end of that, you, on the receiving end of the sin, can be tempted to be discontent with that person or with your situation. And hear this. Satan will use the effects of the, the, effects of the, of the world, living in a sinful world, and other people's sin against you to tempt you to sin. It is a devious, insidious device of Satan. And the Scripture calls us not to be ignorant of his devices. He will use other people's sin against you to be tempted to be discontent with them. This is exactly what he does or what he's trying to do with Job. What happens in the book of Job? Marauders kill all of Job's servant and steal all of his livestock. Satan sins against Job in afflicting his health, sins against Satan's children in killing them. Job's wife sins against him saying, what's your life? Your life isn't worth living. Curse God and die. All of these are sins against Job. And Satan's real end game isn't to just simply hurt Job. His real end game is to get Job to sin. Curse God and die. Be discontent so much so that you disrespect God who has brought these circumstances upon you. And so be aware of that. Whenever we have the enemy of contentment attack us, you could say, from the outside. And how should we deal with that? How do we deal with it? Whenever we have the effects of sin, whether it's the world in general or whether it's a person that come at us. And here's what I would want to charge you with is lament and look forward to glory. Lament and look forward to glory. So lament. Whenever the effects of sin are upon you and not the result of your own personal sin, contentment doesn't mean putting on a plastic smile. Everything's great. There is real heartbreak, heartache, and lament that we can have in our circumstances. Lord, I'm in pain. This hurts. They hurt me. Lord, deliver me. Lord, change things around me. We can lament and we can look forward to glory. Paul says in 2 Corinthians, for this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we, not only, as we look not to the things that are seen, 
but to the things that are unseen. So Paul is saying what we are experiencing here, these light and momentary afflictions that would tempt us to be discontent, to be not at peace, we can say, this stinks, but this doesn't, this pales in comparison to the weight of glory that awaits. He's comparing the two. It doesn't mean that the sin that is upon, that is, that is affecting you is nothing, but it means that we can look forward to glory to a weight that is beyond comparison. Lament, look forward to glory, and look to a person. That is Jesus Christ. Paul says this in Philippians, I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret, he's learned the secret, I have learned the secret of being content in every and any situation, whether fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this, how? What's the secret? Through him who gives me strength. Paul's secret of being content is to look to a person that is Jesus Christ and to say, Spirit, help me in this situation. I need you, and I know that whatever I'm in, your hand has been brought with a purpose upon me. Help me to be at peace with it, even whenever it's sin that is other people or the world that is affecting me. And so in that way, we can lament without being discontent, to say, God is at work in this. He is producing Christ-likeness in me. He's preparing me for glory. I'm looking forward to when there will be no more pain, no more toil in this labor, no more suffering. That's how we can have some level of contentment even whenever the sinful effects of the world or other people are upon us. Well, the enemy of content doesn't just come from the outside, does it? It's not just the effect of the world out there and people upon us. It's our own flesh inside of us. We are tempted to be discontent whenever we simply don't have what we want, when we don't have enough. And these two things aren't exclusive. It's not as if, oh, all of your potential discontentment only comes, you know, it's only coming from out there or inside here. It'll come from both areas, and temptations in one area will result in additional springs of sin within you. Children and adults when you were children and adults now, we, we know this all too well, Man, my parents don't let me watch that. Man, why don't my parents let me do that? I don't have those things. And it doesn't stop when we're kids. Well, man, we can't afford to go on that vacation. I really want to. We don't have the money to go there. We don't have the money to buy this. And the reality of the proverb that we read for our confession earlier rings true. The eyes of man are never satisfied. There's a continual attitude of it's never enough. Jesus issues a warning uh, to those who have this feeling. He says, take care in Luke 12. Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. He tells this, he gives them this warning before he gives them the parable of what we call the parable of the rich fool, a man who isn't satisfied and he wants more and more to fill his barns. And finally, his barns are filled 
in the end of the parable, his barns are filled and he says, now, you know, now my soul is satisfied. I can sit back and relax. And God comes to the man and says, you fool. Tonight, your soul is demanded of you. And then those things that you have, whose will they be? They slip right through your fingers. Now we have this exact same temptation in us. But sometimes what I want to propose to you is that we veil it. We veil it under inheritance. We want to accumulate and accumulate and accumulate, but it's for my kids. It's for them. But newsflash, folks, your kids don't take it with them either. Now, I don't want you to hear me say that saving money is not good or passing on an inheritance is sinful or not good. But what I do want you to hear me say is what are you seeking to give them first? Is it an inheritance of material possessions simply? Or is it an inher- what I'll call an inheritance of godliness? This is the gospel. This is what it means to live it. This is how you forgive one another whenever you sin against one another. That's the possession, if you will, that we should seek to pass on to our children, not material possessions. Again, nothing wrong with passing the material possessions on, but what are you seeking to bequeath to them first? And so, rather than letting an environment of discontent be ripe for the planting of the mold spore seeds of covetousness to desire something else, we should develop uh, and seek ways to fill our hearts that will actually fill our hearts. Whenever we are discontent, everything that we try to fill it with is just filling an empty void, an empty cistern that'll just, the water will just keep pouring out of the bottom of the broken vessel. And so we should seek to fill our hearts with something that will satisfy. And Jesus tells us, which brings us to our second point, to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And just like we talked about the effects of sin coming from out there, tempting us, the effects of sin or our sinful hearts tempting us from inside, I want us to start with the inside of seeking God's rule and reign. To seek to enlarge God's rule in your heart, inside of us. And so, just like the 10th commandment deals with desire, seeking God's kingdom starts with desire in the heart. What is it that you are desiring? Is there a desire for change into Christ's likeness and a desire, and I want to draw the desire for change and connect it to the word, a desire for the word that produces that change. Psalm 119 says, Your word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. If I could stretch the analogy here, what is the psalmist saying? I've hid your word in my heart. I have, I'm creating an environment inside of me that is conducive to the production of righteousness rather than conducive to the production of covetousness and all the other types of sin that will proceed out of it. And so seek to hide God's word in your heart. Now the first feeling that you might have, that I have when I hear that, is I know. I'm not in the word enough. 
I don't read my Bible enough. Quiet time is spotty. Family devotions are spotty. I know, I'm not in the Word enough. But my point is this. As the Tenth Commandment is addressing desire in the heart, it starts with your desire. It starts with a simple desire to say, God, I want to love your Word more. God, I want your Word to change me. I want you to increase my affection for you and for your Word. So, There's all sorts of strategies and applications that the Bible and that preachers we can all go into as far as things that you should do, uh, as far as your time in the Word, as far as seeking after God, but it starts with desire in the heart. And so that's what I want to challenge and encourage you with, is that the desire in the heart is where all those other practical things can flow from, but it starts inside. How about this request of God? Lord, change the reason that I want things. Change it. Change my heart so that any reason that I desire possessions is to increase your reign inside of me and to increase the expansion of your kingdom outside. When you ask God to change the motives that you have for your possessions, then in some sense the quantity of your possessions becomes a little bit moot. It's not about how much you have, but it's about what you're seeking to use it for. And so we should make that a prayer and request of our heart to seek to enlarge God's rule inside of us. The second thing I want us to consider as we seek his kingdom is to seek to enlarge God's kingdom outside, not just in our hearts, not just his rule in here, but his rule and reign outside. God, I want you to give me what is good for your kingdom. And rather than being discontent with my kingdom, you know, my my little world of my household, my family, my possessions, rather than being discontent with my kingdom, I want to seek satisfaction in what God has given me and a desire to see your kingdom broadened. I don't want to build up my own walls. I don't want to build up my own silos. Lord, I want to see your kingdom expanded. I want to have a heart for sinners coming to Christ. I want to desire that more than my material wealth and comfort. I want to see disciples built up. I want other people living in the world to be able to deal with plenty and want and to be content. And that's what I want my desire to be, to see the expansion and growth and building up of your kingdom out there. Because whenever you have those desires, whenever that is what you are seeking after, God's rule inside of you, and the expansion of God's kingdom in the world at large, that's the only time you're going to be satisfied. Only whenever you seek God's kingdom will you truly be satisfied. Whenever you seek the building up of your own, it's the situation of the grass is always greener and there is no satisfaction. It sounds simple, right? Of course, that makes sense. I'm only going to be satisfied because the God of the universe is going to make sure that his kingdom comes, that his rule is established, that his people grow up in him. 
Of course I'm only going to be satisfied when, I, when my desires are in line with His. It sounds so simple. Yet we fall so quickly into seeking the building up of our own kingdoms and whatever that looks like for you. And so as we look at the Tenth Commandment, I don't want us just to see, and I don't want you to hear in the end here, be content, seek after God's kingdom. I, I, I said those things. I do want you to hear those things. But as we come to the conclusion of the Ten Commandments, and as we come to this final one, I want it to point us toward the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Look at the Tenth Commandment and the commandments as a whole and see how it points us to the person and work of Jesus. The first thing it does, the Tenth Commandment especially points us to our need of the work of Jesus. We break the law in the most fundamental stages of our person. It's not just, you know, the, it's not the stealing out there, it's not the adultery out there. It is the theft, it is the covetousness, it is the discontentment in here. I need Jesus Christ because I am broken in my fundamental desires and thoughts. And that gets us to a broader understanding and what we say in our theological circles, one of the purposes of the law. One of the purposes of the law is to point you to your need of Jesus Christ. And nothing probably does that, I think, more than the Tenth Commandment because it starts at the ground level of desire. And to show you, man, when I look in that mirror and I see my level of discontentment, and my level of covetousness of other things or people, it just shows me I need Jesus so quickly. The commandments are not simply saying, do this. They're saying also, because you are a sinner who can't do this on your own, look at what Christ did for you. And so not only do we see through the 10th commandment that we need the work of Christ, I want us to see the depth the depth of the person and work of Jesus Christ. Think of the magnitude of all of your thoughts and emotions that run through your mind all day long. How many of them are riddled with all manner of sin, not just covetousness. They're corrupted in all different sorts of ways, and Jesus is just the same as us, yet without sin. Think of the depth of law-keeping that Jesus Christ had to undertake, that every single one of his thoughts would have been with peace and contentment. I mean, if there was ever a person, if there was ever a person who could have changed his circumstances so that he would be more content if he were ever to be discontent, wouldn't it be the creator of the universe as he's born into a low condition, undergoing the miseries of this life? Jesus knows what it's like to be in want. But Jesus kept the law in contentment as he's born in that low condition. His contentment in the midst of his lack is on our behalf because we don't have it when we lack or when we have everything. That's part of the depth of Jesus Christ's work. If there was ever a person who could have changed his circumstances, wouldn't it be the judge of all the earth as he's betrayed, as he's mocked, as he's put through a kangaroo court trial and put on a cross to die? 
Isn't that a situation where you could see someone saying, this is unfair. This isn't right. But Jesus Christ is the one whose work and person puts him through it on our behalf. It's for the glory of God that is set before Jesus that he endures the cross. He is a person who is seeking the expansion of God's kingdom. So as as I've talked about contentment and seeking God's kingdom, think about Christ and his magnitude and depth of work in contentment and his magnitude and depth of work in seeking God's kingdom. If there was ever a person who sought first the kingdom of God at his own expense, isn't it Jesus? As he literally gives his own life so that there is, recon- so that there is a kingdom of God with humans in it. He gives his own life so that there is reconciliation between God and man. So that's accomplished. Christ's inward motions and affections are for his neighbor's good, for our good, at his own expense when he gives up everything. And that is what brings him actual satisfaction. The same principle that's to be reflected in us, we see first in Christ. Hebrews 12, Jesus, who for the joy, you could say who for the satisfaction set before him, endured the cross. Jesus was truly satisfied when he sought and established the kingdom of God in his life and death and resurrection. In 1965, I think I've, I'm sure I've said these words already, not in this exact way in this sermon, but in 1965, uh, the great theologian Mick Jagger of the Rolling Stones said, I can't get no satisfaction because I try and I try and I try and I try. I had to count. It's four tries. I can't get no satisfaction and I try four times over. When are we truly satisfied? when we have contentment in Christ alone and seek after his kingdom and not our own. And that's the counterintuitive nature of Christianity. It's exemplified in Christ himself. A human being isn't satisfied whenever they have everything. We are satisfied when we're willing to let go of everything. Content in Christ, seeking the glory of his kingdom, of sinners saved by grace. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much that you give us your Holy Spirit to change our hearts, that you do it by the power of your word. We thank you for Jesus Christ who obeyed the law, who was crucified for us in all the myriad of ways in which we break the law. He was punished for those sins. In all the ways in which our thoughts and hearts have to be in line and keep the law. Thank you for Christ who kept the law on our behalf. We ask that you would forgive us of our sins and conform us and change us to be ever more like him because it's in his name we pray. Amen.